a work in progress, I think, would be how I feel now. There's a real liberation in understanding that the way I perceive the world and I engage with it isn't faulty or broken. It's just different. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about digital leadership and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. On today's episode, we have a big treat for you. Our conversation with Tree Hall, who is the CEO at Charity IT Leaders. However, it's not Tree's passion for supporting charities and non-profits in getting the best from their tech that we talked to Tree about. Tree is also openly and proudly autistic, having been diagnosed at the age of 47. It's this diagnosis and Tree's experience of being a neurodivergent leader that we tap into on this episode. And her openness and honesty on the subject makes for such warmly compelling listen. It was such a great conversation. Tree is an inspiration and we loved every minute of our conversation with her. And Tree is a fellow Arsenal fan, which makes this episode even better. Adds a 10% on top. It was a cold week and I wore my Arsenal scarf on several Zoom calls that week and I think I'll do so more often because it's a great uh, icebreaker and she came out as a, as a fellow Arsenal fan. So welcome to Tree. But Zoe, it's February. The weather's warming up. The scarf is coming off. Daylight hours are getting longer. We got through January. Woohoo! How was it for you? Not bad, actually. Very busy, looking ahead to an exciting 2023-2024. So, yeah, not too bad so far. How about you? It did get cold, though. Well, it did get cold there for a while, didn't it? Mm-hmm. I didn't think the, the ice would ever uh, disappear. We had snow in December, so I, I, I'm kind of pleased to see the uh, the sun out. Um, and me and my 11-year-old on the walk to school, checking out the signs of spring. There are snowdrops. There are um, daffodils coming up through the uh, through the grass. So it's it's all good. We're getting there. Lovely. And we've been discussing a couple of stories behind the scenes. So there's been a, a number of articles online about over 50s in the workplace, and we believe there's probably a role for leaders to play in making sure that this missed demographic doesn't get neglected, especially when it comes to digital. Absolutely, Paul. It's a really important issue. And we're recording today on a Monday um, after Jeremy Hunt announced on Friday that there were almost 300,000 fewer people in jobs than before the pandemic. He's encouraging people who retired early after the pandemic who are in those older demographics to come back to the office. And this article from the BBC, which we will post in the show notes, um, talks about what's really going on there behind the scenes. So how there are still challenges with people who are in older demographics being hired by organisations. And obviously that is perhaps a bit of a challenge in digital, because do you think we have a cult of youth in digital, Paul, is what I'm trying to say here? Well, talking for somebody that is, you know, not quite there yet. But you know, we'll be on the way to that uh, that that demographic. Um, yeah, probably we do. Um, I think about most of the organisations I work with, and when I'm introduced to teams, they are in a lot of cases much younger, um, especially on the delivery side. When it comes to things like social media management and oversight and things like that, there's definitely a, a younger demographic at play. Um, so yeah, perhaps we are, and I think that's probably borne out by um, the channels um, and an increasingly, I don't know, difficult place social media in particular for the over fifties to 
play in. Um, you know, Facebook's getting a bad rap for being the place where your mum and dad are. And if you are like us, the mums and dads, you know, are you still there? <laughs> yeah, I think it is a, probably a tricky uh, a tricky playground for, for those people that are, are getting on in age a bit. What do you think? It's the number one thing I hear a lot when I go into organisations, actually. People say, oh, I am too old to do this. And I always counter mm. that by saying anyone can do digital at any age. And what we we do need, I think, to really make digital sustainable in the long term is, sure, we need the 25-year-olds who are amazing at TikTok. And we need the older people who are seasoned. They've been in the workplace for ages. They're brilliant at managing risk. We need both of those groups. We need them to come together. We need them to work together. And we need them to recognise each other's value. And I do think that in this wider move of getting older people back into the workplace, we, we need to acknowledge that, particularly because it speaks to some of the things we're going to be talking about in the next news story, which is around working from home versus working in the office. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, going back to, to teams that we've, we've all worked with, I think um, what I've really valued from the young people in the team is the the ideas, you know, um, this is how I use TikTok in uh, in my personal life, and could we do something similar with uh, with the work, with the business with charity you're working with? So, lots of ideas coming through, and that is really really helpful because those are something some things that you just don't spot because a maybe you're not using these channels as as widely as they are. Um, but I think the one thing that you can't uh, replace easily with youth is that sort of more strategic long-term view and often it is the sort of the okay yeah that's a great idea but how are we going to put that in the mix with all of these other things that we need to do and also a lot of organizations I think miss the fact that the over 50s is a huge demographic in terms of their audience whether it's for fundraising whether it's for uh, you know, you might be working for an up and coming uh, tech firm, but if the vast majority of your audience is shared between uh, a range of, of demographics, including older people who do still uh, need to, to use these these tools and use this technology, then you know, having people that understand and have empathy with that that demographic in, in your uh, in your in your mix in your in your team is is probably well worth having. So. I think it's a it's always going to be a balance, but I think it's it's it's, it's probably one that most organisations probably have work to do on. We're focused on other areas of diversity and inclusion, but perhaps this is another one that needs to be added into the mix. Yeah, and I think one thing that employers will need to be aware of, especially in a digital context, is that fifty now does look very different, doesn't it? I mean, I know people who are coming up to fifty who've got really small children I know people in their 50s who are on their second marriages and having a second wave of of, of children so it's you know and people going off to work in startups I was, I was reading about a startup a tech startup at the weekend where they've got people in their 50s and 60s as well as younger employees so I think I think that any initiative whether it's government-led or within any organization where you are actively trying to get older people into the workplace has got to be based on that understanding of what those older demographics look like and what they need and how it might be very different even 10 years previously. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bang that drum. I am a big kid at heart. Um, you know, when, when I think about uh, uh, where my parents were, perhaps at, at 50, and where I will be, um, yeah. I didn't see my dad playing on the Xbox too often. Uh, there are tropes of uh, 
<laughs> tropes of my young younger self that I will never give up, uh, never give up at all. And the second story we wanted to talk about was, as you mentioned, um, you know, this this age old issue. And every time you send something through about this, I go, my blood boils and I think, oh, here we go. Another possibly, um, you know, possibly misdirected person talking about the, the role of the office. But this was a, a response to a tweet you put out um, about Tony Danker, who's Director General of the CBI, and about comments he made about CEOs that he was talking to wanting to see employees back in offices. Exactly. Yeah. And I tweeted this as a bit of a throwaway thing, just resharing the story and got a real range of responses back. So essentially, Tony Dank is saying that bosses secretly want all of their staff to return to working in offices. And I put this out there on Twitter, just trying to canvas some opinion from charities to find out, is this not the case in charities? Because I'm largely hearing that flexible working has really embedded across the sector, not everywhere, but in quite a few places. Or whether there are indeed some charities who are focusing more on gradually going back more and more to the office. And I got some really mixed responses, all of them interesting, all of them useful. Some organisations that had totally gone remote, some who are getting really comfortable with hybrid now, and then others where people want to go back to the office. They're enjoying it. They need to be with other people or they have to because of the nature of their frontline roles. So, again, I think this takes us back to there isn't a cookie cutter approach to this stuff. It's different for everyone. It depends on your organization's needs. It depends on your employees' individual needs. What isn't helpful are people like Tony Danker rocking up and saying, look, it's got to be like this and this is the best way to do it. Yeah, it does It does smack of, he's had a couple of conversations with a couple of leaders who said it would be nice and he's making a general state, sweeping statement that doesn't seem to be the, reali- the reality for the people that we're necessarily coming in in touch with um and i think one comment in particular stood out for me on your on your thread which was um uh is it nicola upton mm, nicola yeah yeah. yeah nicola nicola upton who came back to you and said that she she talked of it as i think of it as human-centered flexible working and i think going back to you know the story we've just been discussing everybody has different needs at different times in their lives and this um opportunity that we have and I think we have to look at it as an opportunity after after COVID and after everything sort of shifted on its axis. It's an opportunity to reinvent the world of work. And there seems to be a great big proportion of people who um, don't want to reinvent work, want work to be the same way that it's always been. And I like this idea of making it human centred so that you think about the individual and, and their role, the way that they want to, to be, the balance between their home life and their work life how they fit other things around yeah. there was an example with the um the over 50s for example around um caring for elder elderly relatives or elderly parents and things like that how do you fit all this into the world of work it certainly doesn't work if your world looks like getting on a train at seven o'clock in the morning to get to london or another big city working from nine to five monday to friday and getting back to that that sort of um, old way of, of working. Perhaps this is a is a sort of a, a world of people that just, you know, are hanging on by their fingertips to their offices. They want that corner office, as we discussed, you know, the the mad men style. You know, this is the way I've I've, I've built my career and I've got up to, to the corner office and I'm going to hang on to it with everything I've got. Perhaps that's what we're, we're looking at. But as you said, um, people in leadership positions like this coming out with sort of sweeping generalisations without 
having done a simple piece of research which you've done through your tweet doesn't make any sense to me at all yeah I think you're exactly right about that and we'll put the link to my tweet in the show notes just so you can see the variety of things people are doing and how they're responding to and big shout out to Nicola do keep an eye on what she's saying about this stuff um I interviewed her for a third sector piece I think it was last year who she was saying some really interesting things about continuously adapting hybrid working for different people on the team depending on on their needs and how she was doing that was fascinating so keep an eye on her she is fantastic right and one person who had a really clear view on certain elements of um, remote working and how that was useful to her was tree hall who will now go to our interview with with tree we are very excited to welcome tree hall to start at the top Tree Hall is CEO at Charity IT Leaders and is passionate about supporting charities and not-for-profits in leveraging the best from their tech, IT and digital and putting people at the heart of IT. She's also openly and proudly autistic and was diagnosed at the age of 47. Both of her children are autistic, which can make work and home a difficult balancing act. As she explores what autism means to her and how autism has shaped her life, she's committed to increasing knowledge and understanding of autism and other neurodivergence and making the workplace a more welcoming and supportive place for neurodivergent individuals. Tree, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Starts at the Top. Thank you. Great to be here, Zoe and Paul. Thank you for inviting me. So we're so happy to have you here and one of the reasons I am absolutely delighted to have you as a guest here today is um, having known you for for some years and always enjoyed our conversations I feel like there's an emerging strand to what you're doing where you're a CEO as well as an, an activist and you've obviously been sharing these fantastic really insightful posts on LinkedIn and you've talked very openly about your experience as a leader with autism just about your journey um, and I think they've been really eye-opening and so helpful for lots of people so I was wondering if we could start there if we could hear a bit more about your story and and how that began for you yeah thank you that's really kind of you to say that Zoe um I think my my journey in terms of neurodivergence started with my children I'm like an awful lot of adults in that my personal autism diagnosis came very late in life um both of my children are autistic and they are experiencing quite significant challenges through education as a result of their autism and the supports that they need. But it was through finding out about how autism presents for them and what tend to be called male presentations and female presentations of autism that I started to think that I might be autistic. Uh, And (laughs) I mean, I'd, I'd done a lot of reading about this. The reason I laugh about this is because When I first talked to my husband about it, I said to him that I thought I might be autistic and was expecting him to say, no, no, you've just put, you're just seeing autism everywhere because you've been reading about it. So I spoke to him about it and said, I I think I might be, you know, there are all these traits and, and kind of things that are resonating. And he just looked at me and said, well, yeah, of course you are. And he'd obviously picked up on that. I was completely taken aback and asked him, why he hadn't said anything and he said but 
it doesn't matter. It's just you. It's just autism, which was lovely to hear. But then when he went on and said, it's just labels and boxes, I was like, but you know me, I love labels. And that's that's something for me, which I think is an autistic trait that I need. I need definitions. I need those labels. I find them very helpful because they help me to understand me and how I interact with the world and how that interaction can be different for people whose brains don't work in the way that mine does. And I think of it as a different operating system. So that's really where I've where I've come at this from is from the perspective, firstly, as a parent of autistic children, but now also as a, knowing that I'm an autistic adult as well. And I see the challenges that my children are going through. I can recall very clearly how difficult I found school and social interactions. And I just want to do my bit, I suppose, to try and be visibly autistic in the workplace, but to try and make life a bit easier for the people who are coming up, you know, who are younger than me, for the generations following me. And that's why I think it's it's so exciting about the activism side of things that you're you're out there doing, if if, if I can call it that, because you're really owning it and owning it really proudly. And that feels really liberating. It is liberating. I suppose what I'm doing almost is I'm unpeeling my 47 years of masking and the layers that I've built up before I realised I was autistic and the way that I sort of tried to create a persona that felt normal in inverted commas and that that felt as if it was a persona that other people could engage with I'm peeling those onion layers back and it feels in a way quite helpful to do that publicly because as I said earlier lots of adults who are autistic are not diagnosed or are only starting their journey to considering diagnosis and I think seeing how other people have dealt with that can be quite helpful and reassuring because there's so much misinformation about autism. There are still so many negative perceptions about what it means to be autistic that that diagnosis or that realisation that you might be autistic can be quite frightening. And in some ways it is because there are all of those those different bits of baggage that come with it potentially. But actually I found it to be the most positive thing that's happened to me is, is realising that I'm autistic and getting that diagnosis. And it's been a huge um, a huge weight off my shoulders, really. And it's changed the way that I look back on my life and the way that I see myself. And I don't see a series of deficits and negatives in the same way that I did. I just see difference now. And that's hugely empowering. And that's really exciting in, in itself, isn't it? I mean, how do you feel now? Um, a work in progress, I think, would be how I feel now. Um, there's a real liberation in understanding that the way I perceive the world and I engage with it isn't faulty or broken. It's just different. And there's a real liberation in being able to look after myself better because I understand why I'm motivated or need to do certain things. So, A really clear example of that for me is in social situations, even with groups of people that I love dearly, that I know very well, that I'm comfortable with. If I'm at, say, a party with them, there will come a point in that party where I just need to go off for half an hour and be by myself. And throughout my life, I'd felt 
like somehow that was really wrong. Why would I not want to be in that space with those people all the time? Why did I need to go off and have this alone time? And it has to be alone. I have to be on my own. And it was only with understanding more about myself and how autism presents for me that I realized I just get overloaded. And I get overloaded with the sensory input. I get overloaded with the conversations. I know it's a bit of an autistic trope, but I get overloaded with eye contact as well. Eye contact for me is something that is physically painful. It hurts to make eye contact, not here on a screen because there's a screen between us. But if I was in a meeting or in a conversation, an awful lot of my focus and attention is on am I making enough eye contact? Am I making the right kind of eye contact? Am I staring? Am I am I somehow making people feel uncomfortable because I'm making too much eye contact? And things like that are exhausting. So I just reach a point in social situations where I need to take a break from that and be able to go off, reset, just have a bit of time where I can clear my head of all of that. And then I'm I'm happy to go back. But the difference for me now is that I understand why I need to do that. And it's okay. So I give myself permission to do that. And it's much healthier for me, much healthier. You said you, you felt, you feel now that, you know, you're not broken, you're not faulty. Then previously, before your diagnosis, did you, is it that same sense of, I don't quite know why these things why I feel this way, why these things are happening to me and just dealing with those. Is it, it's been a liberation of sorts. It's yeah, it's definitely been a liberation. I mean, that's, that's the only word I can think of really. I I recall very clearly from childhood and at school feeling slightly like the odd one out and I could never quite work out why. And I, you know, I am 47, I'll be 48 in a few weeks. Um, I'm not, I'm very open about my age as well. Maybe that's an autistic thing. I just don't have filters in that sense. But I remember clearly from childhood that I was academically very able. I loved schoolwork. I loved um, learning and getting good marks. It was, again, physically painful to think about breaking the rules and not being well behaved. And there's, you know, there's a lot of stigma that comes with that in a classroom. So I got an awful lot of labels like teachers, pets, what that sort of thing. And I just never quite felt that I was part of the group in the way that other people were. And not knowing why that was, as a child, you tend to internalize that and think that it's somehow you, it's your fault. And that feeling never went away as I grew up, became a teenager, became a young adult, became an adult and so on. There was just always this feeling of everybody else is doing it and gets it. So why can't I? And you do tend to blame yourself for that and think that it's you that's at fault somehow. And being able to recognize those traits in myself as just being part of the way my brain works, has a, it's enabled me to forgive myself. And it, that may sound really silly because why on earth would you blame yourself for the way that you, you are in the world? But when everybody else seems to be part of something and they get all the unwritten and the unspoken communications and and all of this sort of implied uh, contracts in the way that people engage with each other, when you don't understand that and you feel outside of it and yet everyone else seems to get it, you do blame yourself. And I think that's something that I've found in conversation with 
other late diagnosed autistics, that is that's a real commonality that we we do tend to blame ourselves and we do tend to put that pressure and onus for fitting in onto ourselves. And when we can't do that, it must be something to do with us. So that feeling of deficiency and always having to try and compensate for it and work harder to fit in and achieve and and to appear normal, whatever normal is, that's a huge pressure and it's exhausting. And I think it's why so many adult autistics go through periods of autistic breakdown, which can be exhausting and, and just destroying socially, mentally, physically. It, it, that kind of a total overwhelm and overload of years of trying to fit in and mask, suddenly you just reach a point where you don't have the capacity to do that anymore. And that's that's really hard to see people go through that. Absolutely. Do you think that? <clears throat> I mean, obviously, you've got you've got two children, and and your husband, you know, sort of identified that in in you, or seemed to identify that in you. Does it make it easier for you to identify it in in other people? Can you start to see those traits coming through? Is it sort of, to give you a warning sign? Oh, not a warning sign. Does it sort of? Yeah, just help you to help others that that might be feeling in the same way. Is it easier to spot? I certainly think I, I think autistics. Again, I mean, there's a, there's a, a kind of a bit of a truism about autism that if you've met one autistic, you've met one autistic. You know, there are traits and personality types that you see more consistently in autistic communities, but we are all different, and, and we all have different ways of being and feeling and processing. But there are certain things that now that I understand more about autism, I do see in other people. And I just think, yeah, I think you might be autistic, but I would never say that to anybody unless they came and talked to me about autism and said that they were, you know, questioning that about themselves. Because I think if you're not, if you're not in that headspace of wondering then for somebody to just say, well, I think you might be, that could be really, you know, kind of disabling in a way because it almost pulls the rug of your reality and your place in the world out from underneath you. So I do see it. I think I think I probably communicate more naturally and easily with other autistic or neurodivergent adults because we, you know, we do have a, a, a more communal way of engaging and seeing and perceiving so I do yeah I, I do see it and I think the prevalence of autism is considerably higher than we realize there's a hugely high level of underdiagnosis in people of my age group mm-hmm. um, and I think that's because you know obviously in in the sort of decades since I was at school the knowledge and understanding about autism has increased and so it is easier now for people to get a diagnosis in childhood, easier than it was, still not easy by any stretch of the imagination. But I think there were a lot of people like me, particularly girls, who were missed and who weren't diagnosed. And that, unfortunately, girls still tend to have a higher level of uh, underdiagnosis than boys do. There is a perception of autism 
which is about the, what's called a male presentation. And I don't like using terms like male and female because I don't like genderizing things like that. But there is the current diagnostics tend to look for the way that more boys present than girls present. And very often when girls are diagnosed as autistic, it tends to happen in their teens. It tends to happen when they go to secondary school and it becomes harder to mask and to pretend and to fit in. Girls are far better at mimicking social interaction than boys are. So I was a kind of, if you like, typical autistic female at school in that I was bright. I was well behaved. I fitted in. There was no concern about me from an academic perspective. I was probably quieter than most of my peers. I was slightly on the outside of the friendship groups, but there were no real red flags. There was nothing that anybody would have have looked at and said, we need to be supporting this child. And sadly, although things have got better in terms of autistic diagnosis, that is still very much the case for girls at school today, is that they tend to be overlooked in, in that recognition that they might need support and help. I feel like I'm pinballing all over the conversations here. Pull me back in if I'm disappearing off down a rabbit hole, as I am wont to do. No, pinballing is is, is brilliant. That's what these conversations are, are all about. And if we wind forward then to the present day and your experience as a neurodivergent leader, what's that been like for you? So it, that's a really difficult question for me to answer in a way because I think I've always been a neurodivergent leader it's not that I suddenly become autistic I have always been autistic the difference is that for the last I mean I suppose I started to question about two years ago whether I was autistic I got the diagnosis at the beginning of last year so it's only in the last couple of years that I've known that I'm a neurodivergent leader The thing that is really different for me now is that I can understand why I've struggled at work at certain times. And again, I've not had a a kind of checkered career history by any stretch of the imagination. I've always done very well at work. I've never had difficulties getting on with people or certainly not on the surface. Um, Forging those deeper relationships at work, being able to function in busy open plan offices, all of those things that you know you have to do in the workplace. I've struggled with those, but I've internalized those struggles very much because again, it's like being at school. You 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 don't want to stand out from the crowd. Everybody else is getting along with this and thriving in open plan and noise and people bringing lunch into the desks and all that sort of thing. You just you don't want to stand out from the crowd and, and make a fuss about that. So the difference for me now is knowing what I know about myself, knowing the things that I found particularly different through or difficult through throughout work. Is I just want to be able to verbalise those difficulties so that people who are perhaps having challenges in those areas recognise that it's OK for that to be difficult Equally, on the flip side of that, I want people who are neurotypical to understand how disabling some of those challenges can be and to start thinking about how to create workplaces which are more inclusive and supportive for neurodivergent individuals. And it's probably worth saying, actually, that neurodivergence is is a really broad umbrella term and it can include 
obviously autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, um, sensory processing disorder, executive dysfunction. There's, you know, there's a there's a whole gamut of different neurological um, conditions, if you like, that fall under that umbrella that can make it very difficult for people to thrive in the environments that most people find it perfectly okay to work in. So I hated open plan offices, hated them because they were so noisy. Um, People could come up and talk to me from all different directions. And I found that really hard to work with. People would sit at their desk and eat lunch. And the smells from that would be really distracting. I think now it's it's seen as more um, acceptable to be able to wear headphones at work or, or earbuds or whatever. And so you can block out some of the noise. But those really open workplaces, and, and we do seem to have a lot of open plan workplaces now, are not great for neurodivergent individuals. So making some changes is really helpful. Having quiet spaces where people can go and work, being really open about the fact that if you need to put headphones on or sit with your earbuds in, that's okay. Encouraging people to not eat at their desk, which let's be honest, none of us should be doing because we should all be going and taking a proper break away from our our laptops and what have you. But just being aware of those things and open to them. And if somebody comes to you and says, I'm struggling, I need this accommodation, believe them. That's that's a really key thing as a leader is you just have to believe people and not, not be asking necessarily for proof because a lot of autistic adults are self-diagnosed. That's another challenge that, that we face. The route to diagnosis as an adult can be years long. And services in the, the UK for autistic adults are at a massive stretch, incredibly under-resourced for the number of people needing to access them. So a lot of the time, autistic adults are having to kind of navigate their own way through, or try and understand themselves and the challenges that they face and find solutions for themselves. And I think that's one of the reasons why so few autistic adults are actually in work. The most recent statistics say that 22% of autistic adults are employed. 22%. I mean, that's, that's, that's incredibly low. And yet we, as a community of people, we have a huge amount to offer. And that diversity of thought in the workplace is so, so important for finding solutions to things, finding creative ways forward, and just for having higher performing, better performing teams. So, yeah, again, I feel like I've sort of wandered around your your question. I hope I've answered what what you were actually asking. That's so important, Tree, that you've raised that. And that was not a wonder. I think that's vitally important to get this issue on employers' radars because 22%, I mean, the swathes of talented people who have these incredible insights and, and most importantly, different perspectives to share to enrich the workplace and the outcomes that we should all be working towards. Employers are really missing out there, aren't they? I think so. Sorry, go on, just just add to that that you said earlier on about you know it's a different operating system. You know that's what you feel that you you have, and that's what can be brought to the the table. And and as Zoe says, that's you know all the organisations, all the leaders we've talked about uh, diversity of thought and diversity inclusion, all those sorts of things. 
that's what they're looking for. It's who can bring a different perspective to this? Who can bring a different operating system? Who's got those those skills that that we need? And and there's a there's a group of people there, huge group of people there, that could bring that perspective and could bring that insight and could bring that real lived experience. There is, but I have to be honest, if you as an employer want to create a workplace which is supportive and inclusive and accessible for neurodivergent individuals, there is a bit of effort needed on your part, you know, because some of those changes have got to be made and they require cultural change. And I think that's that's something that ties in with our society's attitude broadly to disability. There seems to be almost a reluctance to talk about disability, whether that's physical or whether it's the disability that comes from being neurodivergent. And actually, that conversation is made even harder because if you take the autistic community, for instance, there's a huge range of thought about whether or not autism is a disability and whether being autistic means you are disabled. Now, my view on this has changed quite considerably from when I was first diagnosed. And I was really, really vehement almost that I was not disabled because of autism. And yet there are other people who are equally vehement that they are disabled by autism. As I say, my perspective on this has changed. I think it depends whether you subscribe to a medical model of autism or whether you subscribe to a social model of autism. Now, the medical model is based around deficit and it's based around disorder. You know, it's ASD, autistic spectrum disorder. I don't think I'm disordered. I don't think I need to be cured. I don't think I I don't want a, a treatment for autism. And even saying that, that is coming from a place of privilege because the way that autism impacts me doesn't prevent me from living independently, having a job, having children, having a family. There are people for whom autism has a much more profound impact on their lives and they're not able to live independently. They're not able to work. They might never have a family or or those kind of intimate relationships. So I think we have to be respectful of the fact that people's lived experience of autism and neurodivergence is different. We engage with it differently. It impacts us differently. And we have to be open about having those conversations that, you know, while I I, I hate functioning labels, um, so functioning labels are where we talk about high functioning autistics or low functioning autistics. I would be classed as a high functioning autistic because I've got a senior job. I've a house, I've got a family, I live independently, I'm married, you know, to all intents and purposes, I function at a high level. Then you've got what are called low functioning autistics, and that's people who perhaps need 24 hour care, who are never going to be in employment, who might never have a, a, an intimate relationship, as I said. But those labels are incredibly damaging because as soon as you label someone as low functioning, you immediately invalidate and undermine the skills and qualities and strengths that they have as soon as you label me high functioning you are ignoring all the challenges that I face in life and the difficulties that I have to go through you know and we have to move away from that language because it's incredibly damaging to the entire community um 
I've forgotten where I was going with that now. This is a, sorry, this is an autistic trait of mine is that I'll, I'll get so passionate into a line of conversation that I forget where I was actually going with it. Um, I think I was talking about disability and society. That's right. And um, mm. in the workplace, the effort that's needed by employers to make our workplaces more accessible. So I think we have to recognise that as neurodivergent adults, we do need certain supports, accommodations. We need certain um, changes in the workplace to enable us to thrive. So we don't come without our own baggage. But as a resource, yes, you know, we're many of us are highly skilled, got really creative ways of thinking and seeing and doing and just being part of a more diverse team means that we can create something richer, um, you know, and come at problems from a new perspective. So with that in mind, something that I did want to talk about is as a neurodivergent adult, in the workplace, something that I think employers really need to be aware of is that if you have a neurodivergent employee and they have children, the chances are pretty high that one or more of those children will also be neurodivergent. And that means a real challenge potentially for managing work and life and achieving that balance. Um, I'm quite happy to be open about the difficulties that my children face. I've got one, my youngest is not in school and hasn't been for 15 months. Um, the local authority have said that he requires specialist provision to support his particular challenges, but there aren't sufficient places. So we are now having to consider whether we go down the court route and take the local authority to tribunal to try and get our child an education. Our eldest is also struggling because mainstream education for them is hugely overwhelming. Um, they, they have difficulty getting into school each day. have got different support needs to my youngest, but for me, that means that frequently my children are here at home when I'm trying to work or I'm trying to get them to appointments. Um, my youngest has now started what's called ESMA provision, which is for children who are medically unable to attend school, whether that's emotionally or physically. Um, he has to be dropped to those lessons three times a week. And that's two hours of lessons. It takes about 40 minutes each way to get him there. That's a huge amount of time out of my working week. And being able to juggle that and be in work. I mean, I, I am just so fortunate that my employers at Charity IT Leaders are incredibly supportive um, and they allow me to have that flexibility of my working hours to be able to do that and support my family. Lots of employers can't or don't offer that degree of flexibility. But there just needs to be an understanding that as a neurodivergent adult who's a parent, you might have that going on in the background. And that's that's hard. That's really hard to juggle. Yeah, and as you say, you get that support from um, your employer. Is there... Is there a, a, a you know a, um, a set of resources or something that we can direct people employers to who are in that situation to maybe go off and, and have a look at? Absolutely. I mean, the, the first organisation that comes to mind, and there are many wonderful organisations offering support in this area. So apologies that I can't mention them all, but definitely, if you are an employer that wants to look at increasing uh, accessibility for neurodivergence in your workplace 
go and have a look at Ambitious About Autism. They are doing phenomenal work in this area. They have a brilliant set of resources for employers, which will help you make really actually quite straightforward changes to things like your recruitment processes, which make them much more accessible for autistic adults or people with ADHD or or various other different forms of neurodivergence. And actually, recruitment is a really good example of where the tweaks that you can make to the process that will help, say, an autistic adult actually will enable all candidates to deliver a better interview. And I think that's maybe something that people don't realise about the accommodations that you can make for neurodivergent adults is that very often they're things that will benefit your entire workforce, not just the neurodivergent members of your, your team. And if we can create an environment that supports neurodivergent adults, but also helps other members of the team to thrive and flourish, that feels to me like a really positive place to be. So definitely go and have a look at Ambitious About Autism. If you want to just find out more about, say, autism generally, National Autistic Society, there's a very particular profile of autism, which um, we have in our family, which is PDA, Pathological Demand Avoidance don't like the term. Um, I, I have issue with quite a lot of the terminology around neurodivergence, but PDA requires a very specific type of support. And again, PDA Society is, is doing wonderful work in, in that area. But if you are an autistic adult looking either for support for yourself or a family member or loved one, there are an absolute plethora of fantastic small local organizations as well that can plug you into support groups and training courses and so on locally so just get out there and do a bit of googling there's there's a lot of support out there and I think one thing I've found is that the neurodivergent community is incredibly supportive and helpful and so Facebook if you're on Facebook I'm not uh, came off that because I just couldn't cope with the overload of it but there are wonderful groups on there um LinkedIn has a very supportive community as well and if if people want to find out more about particular groups on LinkedIn I'm very happy just you know send me a message I'm quite easy to find there's not many tree halls on LinkedIn so yeah just ping me a message and I'd be happy to signpost people to different different places but certainly in terms of charities ambitious about autism PDA Society and National Autistic Society would be three great starting points for people. And those are such helpful resources and thank you for sharing them. And we'll put links to them in, in the show notes as, as well. Um, just to come back to this point about employers and hiring, and you mentioned that if you improve things for people who are neurodivergent, you're actually improving things for, for everyone as well. Can you give us some examples of, of that? Yeah, absolutely. So On the recruitment side, um, and Ambitious About Autism's employer pack makes this so easy to implement, things that can prevent autistic people from applying for a role are ambiguity of language. So you need to be really specific in your job profiles, as an example. You know, in talking about things like must have good communication skills, well, what does that actually mean? Um, Some autistic people will be fantastic with written communications, but may struggle with spoken communications. Be specific, tie it down, make it really clear what you're expecting. 
if you're thinking about the actual recruitment process, be aware that for a lot of autistic people coming into a new place can be really, really overwhelming. You don't know what it's going to look like. You don't know what it's going to sound like. You don't know how to get there. So include things in your recruitment pack, which could be a photo of the office, um, a picture of the room where the interview will happen. Give people the option to be interviewed online. I mean, I was interviewed for my current role online, which was by necessity because it was uh, during lockdown. But I found that process much more accessible because it was more within my control. I was sitting in my own environment. I knew the environment. It just felt much safer. Um, Let people know who the interviewers will be. Again, if you can put a headshot and just a brief bio of who that person is and why they're going to be in the interview. It's about reducing the unknowns. Lots of neurodivergent adults will find it challenging to process questions that they're asked to interview when they're feeling anxious and, and a bit stressed anyway, and to be able to pull out the information in the question and then formulate and articulate a response. Give them the questions in advance. I mean, really and truly, it's not going to adversely impact anybody in making the questions available. And by doing that, you give people who are neurodivergent the opportunity to really read and understand the question and think about how that question relates to them. Equally, if you're neurotypical, having that question in advance, again, enables you to do that. So you're not um, you're not disadvantaging neurotypical applicants by creating that openness and transparency and transparency. The other things that can really help are being explicit in your organization's communications about the fact that you welcome neurodivergence and you welcome applicants from different backgrounds and who um, think and see and access the world in different ways. But you have to, you've got to walk that walk as well as talk that talk. So be really clear about it. Be clear that you are happy to make accommodations for people if they feel comfortable to share them think about what you as an employer will say if you're in an interview with someone and they disclose that they're autistic and ask what you do to support autistic adults in the workplace how are you going to respond to that because it matters and I know of a lot of autistic adults who've been in interviews who've asked about um, diversity and inclusion and who have left the interview because they felt so othered by the response. So think about what you're going to do to put people at ease and to really demonstrate your inclusive credentials. I mean, that that's all focusing very much on the recruitment side, but hopefully that gives just an insight of some of the small changes that you can make, which will create a huge difference for autistic people. And those are such brilliant clear practical steps as as well thank you for sharing them tree absolute pleasure and they all feel pretty manageable I think they are A, a lot of the a lot of the changes and the support that we need is very manageable the challenge is that sometimes there's a perception of well why is that person being treated differently and you know it's not fair they're getting more than me and I think it's really useful to keep remembering that diversity and inclusion is not about treating everybody the same 
that's not inclusive. That's not equality. Equality is about giving everybody the same access and the same opportunity. So if I was in a wheelchair, I obviously wouldn't be able to get into a building unless there was a ramp. And that doesn't mean that I'm being given an unfair advantage if there is a ramp provided. It just means I'm being given the wherewithal to have the same level of access as someone who's not in a wheelchair. And that's that's the key, really, for me around equality and inclusion is that you don't look at what you can do to treat everybody the same. You have to look at what you do to give everybody the same opportunity. And that's quite a different thing. But I think sometimes people get a bit tied up in equality means the same and parity. And it, it doesn't. Yeah, a lovely sentiment. And I, I mean, we're, we're sort of um, coming to the end of our conversation. Um, before Zoe um, came on online, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling very well today. I've got a scarf around my neck. It's an Arsenal scarf. And you mentioned that you and your family are Arsenal fans. Um you know, a few a few years ago, you might not have told me that, which is, you know, you might have kept that hidden from the world and not wanted to sort of explore that side of yourself. I, I, I recognise that side of things. But um, I just wondered what the experience and, and how have you been able to take your, your uh, both boys? No, uh, with a boy and non-binary. Right. So have you been able to take them to to games at all? Because I think the... Arsenal have done a lot of work in in this space and they have a um a sensory room I think where families with or with autism and other um other neurodiverse people can go and experience the game in a in a in a way that's um yeah safe and and, and open for them um have you have you have you managed to go to games and what's that experience like for for your children and the family we have gone to um a few games at Arsenal, not as many as I would ideally like, um, but, you know, that's the compromise you make as a family. Uh, and we've also gone to games at Watford, which is our local club. Um, shout out to Laura Dawson there, big Watford fan. Um, <laughs> we've not done it in the context of using um, sensory rooms or the facilities that the, the clubs are making available, which is fantastic in terms of making sport more accessible, not just for neurodivergent um, families, but also for families where there's some kind of physical disability as well. The games can be really overwhelming for, for my kids because it's not just about what happens in the stadium. It's also about what happens on the way to the stadium. So with the best efforts of the clubs, things like for Arsenal, having to get on a train and then the tube, that's very often a step too far for my children. Um, I hope we might find ways to be able to get to more games in future. But I think it, for us, we as a family recognise that we all have different needs and abilities and our abilities might change day to day or even sometimes hour to hour. So we have to be very flexible about what we will encourage our kids to do and what we will do as a family. Uh, and that's another challenge that, that you face as a neurodivergent adult with children is that you have to sort of change perhaps your expectations of what family time looks like. So for us, family time isn't always all four of us doing things together. It's one adult with one child doing something that that child can access while the other adult is doing something different with the other child. But yeah, I, I mean, the football side, I'd love to get them to more games. I fear that neither of them are going to be as bigger an Arsenal fan as, as my husband and I, but 
it's time. There's time to indoctrinate them into the Arsenal ways. Um, what a year to do it in. <laughs> hopefully. Fingers crossed that uh, it doesn't all crash and burn now. <laughs> Amazing. Very good. We're also fulfilling one of Paul's aims here to ultimately make this a football podcast. So <laughs> really good, to, really good to hear about and really interesting to hear about these experiences as well. Um, and this has been such a fascinating discussion, Tree. Thank you. And before you go, is there anything that you want to share with our listeners about charity IT leaders? Oh, thank you, Zoe. That's really nice of you to, to give us space to do that. Um, just to say, if you are a charity or a not-for-profit and you want to do more with your IT, doesn't matter if you don't have an IT team, doesn't matter if you outsource, doesn't matter if you're an office manager that's also got responsibility for IT, come and find out about our community because there's a huge range of knowledge, wealth and support within the community. People are very, very happy to share and collaborate. And, you know, we're here to help charities be more effective by getting more from their IT. So, yeah, come and find out more. And we've got our annual conference um, rescheduled from October because there was a burst water, mate. It was Watergate Mark II. It was, it was really stressful. But we'll be in Oxford again uh, on February the 8th, 9th and 10th. So if you're a member and you haven't booked a place, come along. If you're not a member but you'd like to come, we have got a limited number of non-member places. So, yeah, just come and find out more. We'd love to welcome you. Fantastic. And we'll include a link to Charity IT Leaders in the show notes as well. Thank Tree, you. Our pleasure. And thank you so much, Tree, for sharing your story here today. I'm sure it will inspire and educate many people. So thank you so much. Thank yeah, you. Such an interesting conversation. Thank you. It's been great talking with you both. Thank you for letting me disappear off down rabbit holes and, and talk to my heart's content. It's much appreciated. And it's been lovely chatting with you both. It's the way we like it lovely thank you so much to tree for joining us on the podcast what an inspiration she is yeah tree was a fantastic guest so open so thoughtful i certainly learned a lot and, and going back to our intro i thought it was really interesting how she talked about the experience for um, as someone with autism of um working for a screen and how helpful that could be in certain situations when she was talking about not being able to make eye contact with people but a screen being a, a barrier to um, to that and an actually a useful barrier in that sense. I thought it was a really, really helpful and useful conversation. I hope our listeners did too. Until our next episode, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Starts at the Top 1 and you can also email us at startsatthetop at gmail.com. If you have any questions or insight or anything you'd like to share at all, please do get in touch with us through those channels. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else to get your podcast, you can rate and review. Please do. It all helps with our visibility and reach. And we'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.